I'm Shadi Champagne. Welcome to my show. I'm Shadi Champagne. Where we dream and lift each other up. I'm Shadi Champagne. Love is the answer. Grace is the way. We're anchored in hope. The Shade Champagne Show. And we keep the faith, entertainment, education, inspiration. Shade Champagne, Shade Champagne. Welcome to the Shade Champagne Show. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Sade Champagne Show on Grindhard Radio and 57WLLE.net, the beat of the city in Raleigh, North Carolina. My theme song was produced by Alberto Morello, recorded and mixed by The Quakes, and written by me. For this week's special episode, I have a very extra special guest. Originally from Spanaway, Washington, Calvin Michaels resides in Washington, D.C., the place he's called home for the past 15 years. He is also a Howard University alumni and currently works as a youth development professional where he oversees the daily operations of a nationally top-ranked after-school program. He is also a social commentary blogger, musical artist, experienced choreographer, comedian, screenwriter, actor, public speaker, creative director, and magazine contributor. He is a jack-of-all-trades and a master of many. I have to give him a special introduction. Please help me welcome Calvin Michaels. Hey, Calvin, how are you? Hello, I'm well. Thank you for having me. Oh, my goodness. It's a joy to have you on. And so I want to share with our listeners first how I found out about you and why I wanted to have you on the show. So I love your YouTube channel, and I'm always sharing different videos of yours on my stories and telling people to go check it out because I think what's cool is not only do you give, you know, social commentary, but you actually bring historical facts with it. And I think that's something that's definitely missing in what we see uh, nowadays with anyone who's either a journalist or a social commentator is it's mostly just opinion and maybe a half of a fact, if that. And so I thought that was so cool. And then also you're really funny and engaging and then just you're really talented with your music and everything. And so I was like, you know what, I need to have him on the show. And so I'm excited <laughs> to have you here. Well, thank you. You're so welcome. So, Calvin, how did you first get your start in performing arts and creativity, and when did you know that you wanted this to be a large part of your life? I feel like a lot of people in my family are already pretty talented in a bunch of things, whether it's music or other forms of creativity. But I think the trigger may have been when we relocated to Europe for a few years. Uh, My parents were military. And so when we lived in Italy, there was no TV to watch because, you know, there wasn't cable. If you had cable, it was in Italian and we didn't know how to speak Italian. So that was like a three-year time period where we didn't watch TV. And even with the radio, um, all the radio stations were Italian. They did have, you know, Mm -hmm. some big hits in the United States that would cross over and find its way on the station. But we only had one American radio station. It was like a military kind of station, and they would change the genre of music each hour. And so I think like the R&B hip-hop hour was, I think it was either when I was in school or really late. I can't remember. But 
because of that, you just found things to do to stay entertained because you couldn't sit in front of a TV all day. And this is also before the Internet was really jumping, jumping, because it's like the late 90s. So, you know, this is still the era of dial-up. And that conversation gets more complicated when you're talking about international services and all. So, anyway, um, Mm -hmm. it just put me in a position where I spent a lot of time finding ways to stay at peace. And so I kind of just discovered that, okay, I'm pretty good at this music thing. And then, again, I have that experience of growing up in church and, I always say if you've ever grown up in church, that's your first introduction into music theory because you're literally, you mm-hmm. know, if you're in church every Sunday or even if you have to be in a choir as a kid, you're literally learning about modulations and three- and four-part harmonies and, you know, mm-hmm. chord progression and key. T- you learn all of that indirectly and don't even realize it. And so when you go through that for mm-hmm. years and years, it builds. So I think that's how I kind of got into the music. I taught myself to dance around that same time, too, um, because we didn't have TV, every now and then somebody from the United States would come, you know, would move to Italy because, you know, they got stationed there as well. And they bring like a TV concert or a music video or something they recorded off the TV. And then, you know, I'd borrow it. So somebody brought Janet's Velvet Roll tour. Um, I had Michael Jackson's mm. Dangerous tour. And so I used to just watch those two things back to back over and over if I needed a TV fix. And then, you know, you start emulating what you see. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's just interesting. Everything kind of just all connect everything from like music to comedy acting because as i got older i started doing theater i did a few radio commercials as a kid so um it's just mm-hmm. you know you kind of dip and dab and everything and if it's interesting i'll jump into it so i guess right as a creative and performing artist how are you navigating your way through the pandemic and what advice and words of encouragement would you give to other aspiring and up-and-coming songwriters creatives artists so I feel like the pandemic has a lot of layers. The bad is, of course, everybody's stuck in the house. People have lost a lot of things. Some people have died. Some people are sick. I will say I think it also gave a lot of people time for reflection and a time to slow down and really find what it is that keeps them happy. Because if you're somebody who's been mm-hmm. very social and then you're told you got to stay in the house for a year, that can be a very mm-hmm. tough experience for a lot of people. For me, I'm kind of a homebody anyway. I'm good. So for me, this was, <laughs> I don't want to say it was perfect, but, yo, I got so much stuff done, like working from home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, I, I, I do, and I've said this before, but I do think there's going to be some really great content that comes out from a lot of people that are creative that have been, you know, using this time to rebuild or rebrand or create as a way to kind of escape the hardship of what's been happening, you know, globally. And so I guess my advice is always kind of um, when it comes to anything with creation creation or creativity, there's not really a time limit. I think a lot of times people are always so pressed to constantly put out something or meet a a threshold or or somewhere. I feel Mm -hmm. like if you're not currently signed to an agency or a label or something and you kind of are your own free will freelance artist, Mm -hmm then utilize, you know, the time for your best benefit. Like if you're a creative person and you need a whole lot of time to do something, nobody knows you're working on anything anyway, so take your time and do it, you know. And so Mm. I'm one of those people that really I don't say too much until something's ready to come out. I've learned, like, don't announce nothing until it's ready because I I used to be that person who's going to tell that, guess what I'm working on, and then maybe it didn't come out too well or it was terrible or it didn't come out. And so, I don't know, I, I was just definitely one who felt that in this era with everything happening, this is a great time to kind of reflect and just document how you feel. And it doesn't even have to just be music, people that write or paint mm-hmm. or that, that do anything. This is the perfect time mm-hmm. to really jump into what makes you happy because 
you know, I mean, things are starting to slowly normalize, but like this last year has not been one that's normal. And so what better way mm-hmm. to kind of even document what's been happening than creating something. Mm-hmm. I 100% agree. And so, Calvin, when you get back on stage and you're able to tour, what would your ideal live stage show look like? Your creative skills are endless from choreographing to emceeing to acting to comedy to music production, dancing. So what will your ideal live stage show look like? That is a great question. You know, so one of my favorite entertainers in the world is Sinbad, the comedian. Um, he was one of my favorite comedians mm-hmm. growing up. But what I've always appreciated mm-hmm. about him in his stage shows, well, one, he never used profanity. I'm not saying don't use it, but it just kind of, I always kind of model things after him because one of the things in comedy is like if you can do a show without using profanity, that means you have a gift at really telling a story or putting something out there to really connect. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing that appealed. And plus, I was a church kid, so I can only watch so many comedians, but he was safe enough for the house. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, in his comedy shows, he would have his set where he would do his set, but then towards the end, he had a whole live band because he always wanted to be a musician. And so he would turn his comedy show into a concert at the end. I'm not really sure if I would do the same thing. I think I kind of keep the two worlds separate, but uh, my ideal kind of live show um, I'm probably not going to play a lot of instruments during the set because I do produce on my own music, but I'd rather just have a band kind of cover that. I'd mm-hmm. probably still pretty much be like a musical director of the show with what I want. But um, mm-hmm. I think I'd, I'd, it'd be a lot more of a visual show. I'd probably have two or three dancers um, in a live band and a little bit of everything. It's kind of interesting because I feel like my music has a bunch of layers, even some of the stuff I'm kind of putting together for later. I'm like, okay, if you ever have a concert, I don't know what direction this is going to go in because you kind of got a bit of everything. How does this go? Mm. <laughs> but um, I feel like it would be a very high-energy show. Like I love a concert that's high-energy where it's like just a straight party. Um, mm-hmm. You know, of course I love a good ballad or a slow jam, but I really like some up-tempo that just – I don't know. I'm a, I'm a people watcher too, so when I go to concerts, I love to watch other people enjoy themselves. Um, mm-hmm. I took my godmom to see Gladys Knight and the OJ maybe two years ago. And the best part mm-hmm. of the show, in addition to Gladys and the OJ, was just the audience. You're watching people in their 60s and 70s relive those young adult years, teenagers, and you you watch people who are, like, established and maybe CEOs of companies literally turn into teenagers just excited about mm-hmm. the stage. I <laughs> always enjoy seeing that. So, yes, yeah, I, I just want to have a fun show. Mm-hmm. I, I always love that, too, which we're actually going to get into um, your YouTube channel. I always love when you share your reviews about the different concerts you've been to because it's like you take us on the experience with you, and that's one of the mm-hmm. things you talk about is you love to see the audience. And that is fun, like, at a show, like, seeing how people respond to the artists on stage and then, you know, like you said, being able to have it be like a full party. I remember seeing um, – at the Ventura County Fair, because where I'm based in Southern California, I'm in Ventura County, and I saw Salt and Peppa, and it was literally like right. a party outside, and we just all had so much fun, and everybody's dancing, and it just was like incredible. And the same thing with like In Vogue and Boys to Men, which obviously um, In Vogue has a little bit more up tempo songs than Boys to Men, but that still was also incredible. And then even Babyface, and so it's cool, like you said, yeah. being able to see not only the artists on stage, but everyone else and the audience too. Yeah, that's always really fun. That that actually makes the show even more enjoyable. Like you're enjoying the show, but if everybody around you is just as lit as you are in the show, it's like mm-hmm. a whole experience. So that's always fun. Yes, definitely. So Calvin, how did you first get your start on YouTube and share with us the progression of your channel since you first began? 
Ooh, so I never intended to be on YouTube. It was never a thing I thought I was going to end up doing. But while I was mm-hmm. at Howard, or actually before I got to Howard, it, I was teaching a bunch of competition teams, or like coaching like teams, like Washington State, hip-hop choreography um, tournament teams. Are, it's big. It's kind of like football and basketball. Like they go to state and go to larger competitions mm-hmm. and everything. And so I was doing that as a high school student. Um, and that was actually helping me to pay for my room and board by the time I got to Howard. And so the issue was, you know, Washington State and Howard are 3,000 miles apart. So I still had all these contracts I couldn't just pull out of just because I was going to school because I had signed on with these different teams that, you know, they contract me for that academic year for all of their competitions. So I was like, okay, well, I got an idea. Why don't I teach my lessons on YouTube when I'm in D.C. and then the teams can watch it that way? And then the school districts had worked out some kind of partnership with Alaska Airlines, and then I could still fly to Washington State every other weekend to go and teach the courses. And so YouTube initially was kind of just my rehearsal channel. So the teams that wow. I had like four different teams. And so everything, you know, mm-hmm. YouTube has an option to let you have unlisted videos. So those videos you guys would never be able to see, but the people who had the links could see them. That way I didn't mm-hmm. have the teams getting their stuff mixed up. So that was how it started. Um, and I did wow. that until about 2008-ish maybe. Um, but then after I finished at Howard, I, I came out of Howard at the peak of the recession. There's no jobs. And so I moved mm-hmm. back home to Spanaway, Washington, and it was even worse over there because it's like, okay, now you're competing with, you know, 65-year-olds who have lost their career. So you got to compete with them to work at Starbucks. And so it was not a good setup there anyway. So then I was like, well, I need to do something until I find a job. And so that's how I got into stand-up comedy. I was like, well, let me just go do a stand-up comedy show. And so that became a thing. And then YouTube actually was kind of my promotion for my show. So anytime I did a show, I'd just upload the show on YouTube. But, of course, nobody was watching it because nobody's going to look up. I don't even think my name was Calvin Michaels yet. So nobody's just going to look up me. Um, mm-hmm. And so what triggered the, the full channel, as far as what you probably see today, um, there was a woman named Bethany Storrell in Vancouver, Washington, who made this claim that she was attacked by a black woman and the woman had threw acid on her face. And it was this huge media story. And so everybody in Vancouver, Washington is looking for this black woman who may have attacked her. The problem is Vancouver doesn't really have a black population. It's like six people over there. And so I was like, man, what does that feel like to be like a black person in an area where they're looking for somebody in which you fit the description of? And I had just had one of those kind of run-ins with the police maybe a few weeks earlier and so wow. it turned out that Bethany Storr was lying. She made the whole thing up, mm-hmm. threw acid on her own face. I was like, mm. what? So that just set me off. And I had to get something off my chest. So I went straight to YouTube. And so I didn't think that video would really do much. Um, and I think mm-hmm. it got maybe one or 2,000 views. But at the time, if you've never really used YouTube in that way, that seems like a whole lot. So I was like, okay. Yeah. And so I gradually just started kind of uploading content when I felt like it. It wasn't a consistent thing. Like right now, my goal is to always have something out at least every week and a half. Back then, it was just mm-hmm. I felt like having something, here or something. And so I did that for a few mm-hmm. years, did a little so, you know, did okay. Um, then around 2015 or 16, one of my friends that I went to school with just randomly found my channel. They were like, I had no idea you did this. Why don't? But then they were saying, why don't you – be a bit more consistent because at the time I think maybe I had two or three thousand subscribers. And like you know, mm-hmm. you could probably have a great channel. It just actually upload more content because sometimes I go a month or two without uploading anything. And so mm-hmm. I was like, all right, fine, let me put some effort into it. So I started just trying to revamp um, what I was doing, and then I realized I could use YouTube as a way to also market my other stuff. And so that's how the podcast mm-hmm. became a thing. 
the album kind of turned into a thing. And so, you know, fast forward to years later, the channel has finally grown, and now everything kind of works full circle. So it was kind of a journey. I've had that channel for a really long time, but it's just now mm-hmm. gotten its legs maybe two years ago. Wow. That's a really cool story, Calvin. What are your favorite types of videos to create? Oh wow! Because <laughs> now it's now that I put so much effort in the videos, I don't even like making them no more. Um, my favorites <laughs> are I like when I don't have to talk about anything too heavy. People really love me, to, or they love when we cover like you know current events and police brutality or things, politics mm-hmm. and racism. I I enjoy the conversation, but there is a weight that comes with it sometimes. So sometimes it can be draining and cover right. all the time. But my but my favorites I used to love doing like music um, reviews or like award shows and everything. It's not as funny mm-hmm. anymore because I, I've just gotten older. I'm not familiar with a lot of the newer acts, at least in the pop world. And most of the awards right. are, are getting around pop. So those used to be my favorites. Um, I really like doing the live. Those are fun. I, I like the live mm-hmm. because it's kind of, I can just feed off the energy of what's going on in the comment section. The only flaw with the live <laughs> is I have to really be on point because at least with the pre-recorded videos, if I mess up, I can go back and clear, clear up something I may have misstated or spoken. Mm-hmm. I can have all my facts and stuff right there with me and shout out and throw numbers and all. If I'm doing a live, I already have to have most of that already kind of memorized and just ready to present. Um, and with a live, mm-hmm. you never know what direction things are going to go in. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, those are probably my favorites. Anything fun. I like to make people laugh, um, which is why mm-hmm. I do podcasts, because I felt that maybe people were seeing too much of my serious side. I was like, okay, well, what can we do to kind of counterbalance so people don't think I just wake mm-hmm. up pissed off every day? So, yeah, that's where the podcast came from. Right. That's so funny. Yeah, I love watching your um, award show reviews and reviews of, like, movies as well. Obviously, I like all your content, but I definitely enjoy that, too, and it's always cool hearing it from someone else's perspective and, like, when you, you know, see different movies and share about So I, I enjoy that content as well. And it's funny because you actually went into my next question, you know, about how you weave comedy into your content and even have your own podcast titled Comedically Hard-Headed. <laughs> so please tell us all about this awesome podcast and when you first became interested in comedy. Okay. So as far as being interested in comedy, I was always kind of the loud, lively relatives in the house that were going to always, like I have a cousin Brandon and we used to randomly put on variety shows for the family when we were eight or nine. And, you know, some family members hated it because we'd be frying up other cousins <laughs> and mocking them and skits and stuff. So, you know, like you'd have a cousin walk out or something because they feel some kind of way and we're like eight. But so I've always kind of had a niche to want to do comedy because I've always wanted mm-hmm. to work in film. And Chris Tucker was one of my favorite people after I saw Rush Hour. Yeah. I was like, I want to be just like Chris. And so, I, you know, yeah, honestly, I used amazing. to always say in high school, I'm like, I'm going to be in rush hour three. But then it came out while I was still in school. I was like, oh, wait, never mind. Okay, well, if they make a fourth one, I'll be in that <laughs> one. But yeah. um, with the YouTube, so as I was starting the YouTube channel, I always kind of just talked about whatever. It was never solely locked on only politics or only pop culture or only music. Like, I kind of covered a little bit of everything, but it was a little bit more comedic. As it progressed, I felt like the channel got so serious because especially, you know, you just pay attention to the news, especially after maybe 2012, 2013, things just started to seem so much more gloom and doom around politics and race and police brutality and oppression and Mm -hmm. injustices. And I just noticed like, man, you starting to upload a lot of videos that are just like, man. And so some of the people who initially followed me from the beginning that were more so there just to get a laugh, they're like, yeah, this is cool, but dang, man, we does everything got to be something that mm-hmm. we got to go march for? So I was like, all right, well, what mm-hmm. are we doing? Somebody was saying, can you do a podcast? And initially the podcast wasn't going to be 
the format that it is now, it was going to pretty much be an extension of what I was already doing, but just on, in podcast form so people could listen in their cars. And I was like, yeah, right. I'm going to do something different. And so I didn't know what I was going to do, but I had already announced that, oh, the podcast is coming out on this date. And so the date is getting closer <laughs> and closer. And I'm like, dang, I don't know what I'm doing. So literally the night before the podcast is supposed to come out, I just sat in front of the mic and just started talking, and whatever came to my head came in. And so it ended up being the story about um, going from, like, being a college student to being unemployed and then getting to, you know, my actual career. But it ended up kind of being somewhat of a funny story. So I was like, maybe this podcast would just be storytelling um, just about, like, mm-hmm. past experiences and all. And so that's kind of how all of that came together. But, yeah, I had no idea where the podcast was going. I think even – in older videos or maybe even that first episode, I'm talking about, oh, and if you guys can just send me your questions about life struggles, maybe I can give some advice. I ain't did nothing like that yet. <laughs> That's three years ago. So, <laughs> yeah, it's just storytelling. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I love the podcast, too. And I think that's another reason why I enjoy your channel and your content so much is I feel like you do a really good job of having a variety. And even though, like you said, yes, people may love hearing the news part because, obviously, it's current topics and it's just, you know, people are really into what's happening and the heavier stuff. I appreciate the fact that you have that lighter content because you're on. You're pretty much one of the few YouTubers I actually watch to hear other people's thoughts on things and to hear different reviews and news because I've honestly had to filter out a lot of the content because it can be so heavy and discouraging. You know what I mean? It's like and you're, you're constantly mm-hmm. hearing and seeing that all the time. It's like it can really affect your mood and how you start seeing life and seeing people. And I was like, uh I got to cut this out. And so you'll be literally one of the only videos I'll watch to hear about. And then obviously if I actually watch a news channel, like the Black News Network, and otherwise I'm like, I don't want to hear it because it's just going to be too much in your psyche all day. And so I appreciate the fact that you, you know, do a variety of content. Thank you. Yeah, and I and I try to, even with like the in the news ones, because those are the most popular videos. Those ones take the most work. I'm cussing while I'm putting it together, but those are the <laughs> ones everybody wants. But I even try in those because, a lot of times they can be very heavy. I'm like, at least let me let the opening mm-hmm. half be a little bit more whimsical. That way, and, you know, you put the time stamp. So if it's too much, you can turn it off when it gets to the stuff you don't want to watch um, as far as right. the heavy subject. But, yeah, that's a lot. And I always try to nicely tell people as well because, you know, I have a lot of people who reach out through social media. And, they, you know, they, a lot of times you'll get a message and it's, oh, I love your stuff. And then can you talk about this? And then it's, I don't know, somebody just got shot in the face. I'm like, it's 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. Like, don't stress me out. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I, right. and people mean well. They're not trying to do anything right. sense or They just want somebody to make sense of what's happening. And I'm like, well, listen, I, I need my peace, too. So there's moments where mm-hmm. I take a lot of breaks and people get mad at me. But i got to stay in the right state of mind. I've seen people literally lose their minds mm-hmm. in the last few years just being too yeah. in of everything. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a good word right there. It's like we think that we have to be so informed to where people are over-informed, and then they don't even know how to deal and regular mm-hmm. life anymore, and that's what their mind exactly. is always consumed with. And I know you understand because you're very much in the community work like I am, and you're into philanthropy and, and helping those who are in need. But we, we also, in the same vein, have to balance, like, making sure we're taking care of ourselves and not just being so consumed with that that, like you said, it literally you begin to go stir-crazy. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then I love what you said, too, about Chris Tucker being one of your favorite comedians. He is obviously one of my favorites as well, and he's also – just as sweet in person and just really down to earth. And he still has that same voice as cracking mm-hmm. when you were talking about him because he was hosting a charity event um, for Britty Cares International, one of our favorite charities, and he's a spokesperson for them as well that helps children that survive cancer. 
and then I was singing at this event, and he had me cracking up because he literally was like, you know, in his voice, he was like, girl, you were singing that song. He's like, Mariah Carey would be so proud. And it just was so funny and to see he just was so down to earth <laughs> and just, you know, um, spending time with everyone there and just really humble. He wasn't acting like, you know, I'm Chris Tucker of all the Rush Hour movies. Right. He just was happy to be there and to support the cause. So that was super cool. All right, so – Let's discuss a few hot topics. At first, um, Calvin, I want to talk about, like, why we think that our society struggles with nuances and multiple truths. You know, not everything is black or white, no pun intended, you know, and the importance of having these nuances and dynamic thinking. For example, you'll see, like, on one side of the political spectrum, we'll say, like, the conservative far right side will say, you know, that the media is the one that's separating us, the media is destructive, they're manipulative and chaotic, which is true. But also, on the other hand, you, we know that there's a fact that many things, you know, have these, a lot of these things that are coming to light have always been happening. We just didn't see them before because people didn't have cameras in their hand or phones in their hand or they didn't have social media wasn't as big as where it is to where you can literally just see something that's happening and post it. And so why do you feel like, our society struggles with nuances and multiple truths. Why do people act like something has to be this or that? Why can't it be all of the above or both? You know, I think, at least in the American experience, depending on how you were brought up, how you were educated, everything has been presented to us as law of the land, especially in the conversation of American exceptionalism. Like we have, depending on where you went to school, but a lot of people's experience in the United States, and especially when you talk about white America, the experience and the lecture was this is the greatest country in the world. Everything we've done, we deserve because we've just been the greatest of the greatest, and the rest of the world is all just terrible, and they're not – even the term freedom. You notice you hear the word freedom mm-hmm. thrown around so much, as if the rest mm-hmm. of the world is all under a dictator. You, know, you would think that we're the only free country <laughs> based on how things mm-hmm. are presented around here. And so mm-hmm. we're now in this – Space where the status quo is always being challenged because, like you said, you now have the emergence of social media, especially maybe since like 2012 onward, um, you've really seen people kind of challenge what's been brought before and what's been taught. And I think there's a lot of people who want to hold on to a status quo. They don't want to, they don't want to evolve. They don't want to grow. They're set in a certain way of thinking because it's either benefited them or it keeps them in a place mm-hmm. of being comfortable. And so anything that challenges that feels like an attack. And so then when you're attacked, you're going to attack back. And so now that's why we're seeing so many people, even like the last maybe two or three presidential elections have been very us versus them kind of. Every election mm-hmm. has been that way. But even when, you're, even when you talk about the divide with the left mm-hmm. and the right, it's literally like war where, you know, people are, are, are willing to literally go and kill in the name of what it is that they believe or what it is that they support. And so you have some folks who are holding on to very oppressive ways of thinking or oppressive policy, but they feel that if you challenge that policy, it's taking away their rights. And I'm like, are we really at a place where you can't even fathom the idea that something that you may be benefiting from is oppressing somebody else, and because the people Mm. that are oppressed are calling it out, now you feel attacked, and you centered yourself in that, and so you go on the attack, and then you go and latch onto something else you don't like about them, and, you know, so it's, it's chaos, and I think that's because as a country, education has always been chipped away. You know, we spend 6% of our mm-hmm. national budget on education. That, and that's just mm-hmm. the policy and the money. Then when you talk about perception and just the overall history of the United States and how things have been taught, like everything, in my opinion, is always centered around race, it's whether people want it to be or not. It's always going to be. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of seam ripping that has to be done to undo what's happened because you have generations that have bought into so many crazy ways of doing things. I was just watching this clip 
coming out of Texas. It was like a young lawmaker who's probably maybe 25, uh, but he was supporting some new policy that's pretty much another kind of voter disenfranchisement type of policy. But the verbiage that mm-hmm. he's using something about pure voters. If you go and you look at the initial terms of pure and you go right. and look at some of the old policies, pure just meant not anything other than white. Like that's just what yes. it was. And But mm-hmm. he had no idea. He honestly didn't even know that that's what that uh, alluded to. He was just kind of regurgitating talking points that he had been taught. And so even when people say, mm-hmm. you know, well, once older generations transition on out, we'll be a better place. Oh, no, because the policies and stuff are still here. That status quo hasn't gone mm-hmm. anywhere. So – I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of layers. A lot of people have to kind of educate themselves. And I do think, to your point, as far as being nuanced, there are things where you can have more than one issue exist at once. And I think that's what's made mm-hmm. it very difficult even in this current political climate. When you look at some of the criticisms that even the current administration, like Joe Biden and Kamala, are facing, mm-hmm. I have a lot of criticisms, but I also do see some things mm-hmm. where I'm like, okay, I, I can work with that, but I need y'all to fix this, and maybe you need to address this. But a lot of times people mm-hmm. are very left right, black, white, it ain't going to be nothing else. The, the one voter, you know, the one issue voters kind of where if you don't give me this, mm-hmm. then I'm just going to let the whole country go under. Like, it's, it is mm-hmm. what it is. I just won't vote. What you mean? They can, well, we just not going to care at all. I don't care. So, you know, I'm not going to get this. Ain't nobody getting nothing. So it's just all over. It, it's <laughs> right. a mess. It's draining to fall. I'll be like, come on, y'all. <laughs> and I've had to have some very difficult conversations with close friends of mine because, you know, I have people in my life that are all over the spectrum and every app, and especially being in the entertainment industry. So literally people, you know, of all different races and backgrounds, all different faiths, all different political views and spectrums, all different everything, gender, sexualities, all of that. And I've had to have some difficult conversations with people on both sides and on all sides, like with one of my dear friends having to talk with him because he's very much considers himself conservative and pro-American, you know, all these things. And it's challenging because I had to tell him, he's like, it's just I feel like with the media and way things are, it's making our country worse and it didn't used to be like this. And I said, but for who? I said, for you, because you didn't mm-hmm. have to see these things. You didn't have to experience this. I said, you have to understand. I said, even, and I was honest with him, I was like, I had to turn off your stories on social media because I know you personally. And so I'm not going to allow what's happening in our world to change how I feel about you as a person because I know who you are in your heart. But as we all know, you can't always show that on social media. I'm like, but you can be very insensitive. You see what's happening with the George Floyd case and everything that's happening, and yet you just want to pull up articles about and post on your stories about Black Lives Matter and about, like, what if people are calling you a racist and you're trying to defend yourself? I said, can you read the room? I was like, you are not being mm-hmm. sensitive about what is happening. And you're thinking to yourself because of how you're used to your life being. And you think to yourself, well, yeah, I've been with, you know, friends who are black and see them get pulled over by the police and they get treated differently. But I'm like, you're, you're still already just glossing over that. Just because they walked out alive and they didn't go to jail doesn't mean that it's a situation we can just gloss over. You have no idea the amount of trauma a lot of people are living with. And so I've had to have these difficult conversations, you know, and it's, it's tough, but it's like I know it's worth it, you know what I mean? And, and it's important because the person, they're just used to seeing, like you said, their worldview the way they grew up and how they lived, and they never had to deal with these things because you don't see it. But now that you have to see it all the time, even if you just say, well, Shadi, it's not as many people as you think. It doesn't have to be that many. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to be that many. You seeing it over and over and over and over. You can give me all the stats that you want to, but you're trying to use stats when people are hurting, and I have an issue with that. Mm-hmm. You know? So I think that's been a challenge. People just want to fax everything away. And I'm like, you can say all that stuff, and you don't look and see how it's affecting people and the fear they're living in and the angst they're living in because you just, like you said, you just want to prove your point and be right so bad. 
you know, and so it's just it's mm-hmm. been a mess. And I've always said, even with facts, a lot of times, especially with statistics, it's so easy to manipulate information and make it twist and fit to a narrative you want to push out there. So even like a lot of times when people, if, if there is a conversation about police brutality and somebody doesn't like the conversation, they'll bring up, oh, well, black people only 12 or 13% of the population, but they make up 50% of the crime. They're like, okay, we're going to have that conversation. Well, let's dive into the dynamics and the demographics, and let's talk about which neighborhoods are policed more. Let's talk about which communities don't mm-hmm. report crime or which, you know, so on and so forth, because we, we could be here all day if that's what we want to do. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, as people will latch on to one little piece of a fact and run with it, but they won't dissect it because a fact will lead to another fact. You always have to dig and, and get to the origins, which is why, like, on the channel a lot of times, I'll jump way back to 1602 to prove a point about something that happened in 2020. And so, um, but I, mm-hmm. and I think another thing we're running into is, because a lot of people, I think, question what's happening, but people aren't really researched, it's so easy to fall and, and fall in line with somebody else's viewpoint that just sounds right. And what I mean by that is you have a lot of people who are vulnerable who recognize something isn't right in the water right now in society. But mm-hmm. because they've never had to really research or really consider anything, they don't know where to start or what it is to, to really look to. They just know things don't feel right. And so all it takes is one person with an internet presence to put out a documentary they done put together with whatever facts they done made up, and then now they've latched <laughs> onto that, and now they're, they're running with it. I say there's a lot of people who want to be the face of intellectualism without the work. And so now you have people who are yeah. putting out content that goes against everything that people who've actually went and studied and done the research for decades and years, they will bypass all of the books all of what happened in history, the documents, but they found one random Instagram meme and somehow made a documentary from the Instagram meme and ran with it. And then people go and buy into it. I just saw yep. it. I'm not going to put them out there because I don't want people to go and look, but I just mm-hmm. saw this whole 30-minute documentary with pretty much what was being stated in it would literally seem with every claim that I guess black Americans would have about maybe some of the grievances they have with the United States, especially if you have like the conversation of maybe reparations. And I was like, Mm-hmm. I don't get the purpose of what this documentary is supposed to do because if anything, like it, it, it pretty much gives permission for no one to have any kind of empathy for the experience of black Americans who had to be enslaved. Like, mm-hmm. I was like, there's no way. I was like, what is the end goal here? But, and when I was watching it, I'm just looking at the alleged research and the alleged facts that had come about, but they weren't, they didn't go anywhere. These were all kind of tidbits mm-hmm. that they latched onto and twisted just enough to fit the argument. I was like, that's, Okay, so it's dangerous because mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who latch onto that. So, yeah. Yep. A, a lot of people mm-hmm. have to do their own research. I always say go and find three or four more sources. Even with my channel, I'm like, challenge me too. Sometimes I may get it wrong mm-hmm. and I'll go and correct, but don't, don't only look to me as the enlightenment on the topic. You need to go and see a few right. people just to make sure. The, and, and, you know, if every, and most of the time if you're in the right, your story is going to align with somebody else's and with somebody else's, and you'll kind of get the same message from multiple people. So, you know. There's layers to all this, but it's a part of society, sadly. Right. And I love, too, that you don't identify with one political party or the other. You will let both sides have Mm -hmm. it, and that's how I feel as well, because especially being in Southern California, and you'll see people that are very progressive and on the left, they'll try to you'll try to put all the issues and challenges together in just one big melting pot. And it's like, <laughs> okay, I understand what you're trying to do here, but you need to actually you need to actually communicate with people and help them and bring about change according to their specific need. Don't just think, oh, you know, if you put out something about colorism and say, oh, I'm so sad that you went through that, and and, and then you just you just you know kind of brush it off or try to move on to the next issue, and they'll put everything in a big pot 
And I'm like, you can't compare that issue with that one. But, you know, another mm-hmm. thing I wanted to talk about in this topic, because you're much, um, you work with the youth and kids a lot, just like I do. So one of the arguments you hear a lot, and people will see, especially because with my story and my testimony, I have overcome a lot of challenges, and I grew up in an environment where I was definitely, I did not have the right cards dealt, and I'm a, I'm a miracle to be where I am, because obviously growing up around a lot of poverty, around a lot of drugs, with my biological father being in prison, and you know all the stats with all of these things, my life mm-hmm. has easily gone another direction. And so when people see me, they'll look at me as the exceptional black person or black woman, and they'll use that argument to be like, well, look at you. You made a choice to have your life be better and everything you came. And I'm like, okay, number one, I get what you're saying about the choice. I said, but you don't understand. My life is a miracle. Like I have had a lot of people by the grace of God and a lot of people, community support, mentors, people that have helped me when I was going through difficult times. I didn't have any bootstraps. to, mm-hmm. they'll, And they'll want to use the argument, well, you need to teach people personal responsibility and they need to be responsible for themselves. And I'm like, I mentor young girls and women and kids, and I do teach them the importance of being responsible and knowing their power and what they carry and, you know, having a a bigger dream for their life and where they come from. But you and I both know if they are not given the help and resources they need in order to help them in their home environment and in their neighborhood, it doesn't matter how responsible you are because your life is still set up to fail. And if you don't have an opportunity mm-hmm. or a chance or get any resources, it doesn't matter. But for some reason, people think if you just believe hard enough and if you're just responsible for yourself, I'm like, you don't know what neighborhood that person goes, grows up in where they can literally, they on their way home, they can get abused. They can get beaten up. They can get shot. They, you know, have, they are, their home life is destructive. And so I feel like it's very irresponsible of people. And like you said, it's very, um, it's apathetic. Like they're not having any compassion on people that come from environments because they just say, well, you look at you. you. You got yourself out of your situation. I'm like, well, then you don't know anything about me because you would know every time I talk about how there's people who have helped me and who have opened doors for me and I've been able to get support. And so what are your thoughts on that? I feel like that goes into what we were talking about with the nuances and the multiple truths. You know, I always tell people that the exception is not supposed to be looked at as the standard. Nobody's experience should have to be burdened by being the exception in order to have just a decent life. Because then that pretty Mm -hmm. much just highlights the fact that there are inequities that exist. And so I've always looked at it that way. Because, again, yeah, in those conversations, especially if you have the conversations about systemic racism, people will go and use and bring up the exception. And and what I find funny, you know, they'll bring up Oprah or Obama or Beyonce or somebody. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, again, when you look at just (laughs) how unique their experiences are, everybody's not going to be a Beyonce. So you you need Mm -hmm. to tell me, like, in order for me to be successful in life, I'm going to need to be probably one of the greatest entertainers alive at the moment <laughs> to have a decent life. That's, that's the standard for me, but for everybody else, they get to just do whatever they want. So, okay, that's mm-hmm. how you're doing things. Or it's an athlete. So now I've got to be LeBron. I, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm only 5'8". I can't, I can't be LeBron. <laughs> so, but, no, I, and I've always said, like, the, the whole narrative of, again, the bootstraps thing. And that's why I always say, like, when we talk about education and history, we've all been – and I shouldn't say we, but when I say we, I'm just talking about America as a collective, even right. though people may disagree. Right. But we've all been conditioned to just think that the entire narrative of the United States was all about hard work and sacrifice, and that's why people made it. And I'm like, if that's the case, there wouldn't be so many poor people in this country because a lot of times the people who are the poorest do the hardest work. You know, they, they go mm-hmm. through so much and, and get yep. no support, and it's so easy to fall into pretty much that gap that you can't get out of. I always think of – you know, even people who are in programs that are, you know, funded by the state. I, I looked at the situation where there was a family that was receiving money from the state because they had a special needs 
um, child. And so they were mm-hmm. at a certain threshold um, as far as employment, as far as what they were making. And so the state was giving them support. The minute the mother mm-hmm. got a better job, they were pulled out of the program. But the problem was the new pay increase that she got was not going to counterbalance the expenses. And so now they're worse off than they were when they were getting mm-hmm. support from the state. Even though she went mm-hmm. to school, she got a degree, got a better job. Even the husband, you know, was doing what he could yep. do, and they're worse off. And it just kind of goes to show that, again, that there's all kind of layers to all of this. And, again, like working with you, you know, I think this is my 10th generation of kids I've worked with. I've been there for 10 years. So um, mm-hmm. I've just witnessed it firsthand uh, where, again, when you have groups of kids that have literally nothing, um, mm-hmm. simple things. And it just made me realize how blessed I was as a child. I, I didn't grow up rich, but – I never had to want for anything, fortunately. And I was blessed mm-hmm. enough to have both parents not only be there but be involved. And I think that's another conversation is a lot of times there's some really mm-hmm. great parents out there that want to do so much more for their kids, but they can't because they work so much. That's kind of the issue yep. I run into with my center where the parents are working two and three jobs because so they're never home. They mean well. They, they want to do so much for the kids. They mm-hmm. can't. So they're not going to be at the yep. band recital. They're not going to. And so I, I try to kind of step in a lot of times, and I, usually I go to everything. I'm at the band recital, no matter how terrible the band is, I'm there, you know, so, um, <laughs> everything. The, the sports was right. in the rain at the baseball game. I'm just like, God, y'all. But I, I just realized how important that is because as a kid, that was kind of one of the experiences I had. My parents couldn't really go to a lot of my stuff, and I used to think it didn't bother me, and then I realized years later, oh, no, it just does. So I try to mm. do that balance. But, yeah, I've just seen it working with kids where – this, the way things are set up, I'm just like, man, I feel so bad. And COVID was the worst thing that happened, especially, like, even mm-hmm. with the group that I work with. Um, because, again, you know, the kids that I work with live in one of the richest areas in the country, but they're not a part of that wealth at all. They're one mm-hmm. of the pockets of poverty, um, and so they're watching the world continue around them, but they're excluded from it. And so my mm-hmm. goal has always been to try to bring the world to them, um, even mm. if it's, you know, I had kids who had never been to the movie theater before until I took them. And they're like 15. I'm like, mm. okay, wow. everybody, let's get, on the, let's get on the bus. Come on. You know, wow. Um, simple things. Or even some kids have never been to D.C. because my center's like right outside the city. And I'm like, just mm-hmm. down the street. Y'all, okay. But, again, everybody's mm. experience is so different. So when people have so much criticism and they, again, latch on to only celebrities and entertainers to be the example of why everybody else should be able to make it, then I'm, my thing is, well, why don't you have what they have then? I'm <laughs> like, okay, I don't see you walk around with Beyonce money either. So, all right. Yeah, that's so good. So speaking of the pandemic and working with kids, um, I want to talk about how the pandemic has specifically affected students, grades K through 12, and what do you think kids can do to help themselves stay motivated and not get behind in school? Because, you know, a lot of these kids have been spending their time in front of a laptop, you know, after the schools finally got all the students' laptops. And so, you know, um, how do you feel that the pandemic has affected students, grades K through 12 specifically, and what can kids do to help themselves stay motivated and not get so behind in school? I hate to say it, but I really do feel that the schools have to kind of restructure their curriculum for the next few years to make up for this past year because this is chaos, honestly, just witnessing mm-hmm. it firsthand. Um, mm-hmm. Even some of the kids I work with that are like, that have always been the 4.0 high school students, even them, like I was watching the grades slip and so many of them were missing class. And it's like, you don't even have to go. You just log in. How are you, how are you missing 40 days of class? <laughs> But mm, wow. I think this is just not normal. And I think 
depending mm-hmm. on what it is you have and where you're from, it, there's a few more benefits that exist. But a lot of times, or with a lot of the school districts, if they were able to afford to give the kids laptops and tablets, cool. But then there was the next conversation, internet access or internet speed. Yep. A lot of people don't have internet. And even if you give them a yep. hotspot, the hotspot is not always dependable. Uh, um, mm-hmm. And so that was kind of the thing we, we ran into, trying to get all the kids set up. And then for kids that are maybe second grade and down, who are still, in my opinion, being socialized, I feel like kids don't really start flourishing in school as students until about third or fourth grade. Kindergarten, first, second grade, they're still learning to socialize. That's why I like think about mm-hmm. kindergartners, those first two months of school, all they do is cry and, you know, they haven't mm-hmm. learned to share, especially if they've only been raised with their family and not other kids in the neighborhood. And so second grade and down, they, it was torture for them. It, it was so hard to watch kindergartners try to stay mm, alert yeah. and active for eight hours. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not normal. Um, and so what I try to do with our kids, because even with our center, we, we had to close for a few months, and we, we went virtual. And so my learning curve with the virtual was that, okay, you can't expect kids to be in school for eight hours and they want to come to your stuff virtually, even though our stuff mm-hmm. was more like, you know, activities and, and cooking classes and all this other stuff. But, again, nobody wants to mm-hmm. be on the screen all day. And so I think right. as parents, um, what I had suggested for those who could do it and who could do it safely, um, I was saying the idea of pods. Um, but, again, this is, mm. this is a conversation of who has the availability. But, you know, getting three or four kids that are in the same class and they meet at somebody's house and do school together that way. Um, so mm-hmm. I tried to do that with my center once it was safe enough to kind of open and socially distance and do it that way, where, um, you know, I have kids that were in the same class or anything like that, and they watched the big class on, like, a bigger screen together. So it was almost like they were in school. Um, and then my staff would kind of fill in and almost help the teacher that way just with those four or five kids that would have been in each pod. But everybody doesn't mm-hmm. – that's not, you know, that's not accessible to everybody. But I did see the results change where the kids were able to pick up a little bit more because kids – you know, there's different way to, ways that kids learn, but a lot of kids, especially when they're young, they need to be hands-on. They just can't sit and look at the yep. screen. Um, right. As far as the older kids, what I had to do with, like, my middle and high school, I had to just do check-ins, like personal check-ins, home visits, um, wow. just, you know, meeting people where they're at. Because then, again, every parent sometimes, even the parents, sometimes this stuff is not really for them either. And when we talk about mm-hmm. how mass has changed and, you know, they got the, the new mass. And, you know, things are different these days. Some parents can't even help their kids with what's out there. So I, I mm-hmm. really think the schools have to restructure the next few years to make up for what was lost, especially for, in my, you know, it's already the research is there that shows, you know, your kids need to be at a certain caliber uh, of success by third grade or it's probably not going to be a good outlook for the rest of their K-12 experience. So those younger ones, mm-hmm. you really got to make up for what it is that they lost. I felt bad for my athletes. Mm-hmm. I had a bunch of boys that all were going to be football and NFL players and mm-hmm. NBA players, and they didn't have a season, you know, especially those that graduated mm-hmm. in 2020. Their senior year, right. you know, they had nothing. You know, so there's mm-hmm. the conversation of scouts not showing up. You know, they might have a highlight reel, but um, right. senior year is the year you're supposed to shake the table. So mm-hmm. ah, it was a lot. It, it, it was very depressing to kind of follow because it's like you watch all your work just, just crumble overnight. I'm like, dang. Um, yeah, because yeah, when we closed mm-hmm. the center, I had no idea we were going to be closed for almost a year. So, mm, wow, yeah, it's definitely been interesting because that's one of the things with my students and hearing from them a lot. I'm thankful when you hear the testimonials of how they are flourishing, but 
just, you know, a lot of them getting far behind and wanting to stay motivated and just, like you said, trying to work through the fact that not all of them have the resources. And even if they do, some of them have multiple siblings, and so they're having to watch the kids, you know, the younger students, their mm-hmm. younger um, yep. siblings, and then also try to do their work and sharing the laptop, keeping them focused, and it's just, it's a lot. And so I think, like you said, too, they're really going to have to do a lot to restructure things. And they may even have to go on a curve with some of these students, you know what I mean? And I know that sucks for people to say that because they're like, well, it should be like this. I'm like, well, we all have this. This is a year that we were not expecting. We've never seen anything like this. And so I feel like they're gonna, it's going to have to change, you know, And because so, you cannot be failing all these students. <laughs> You know. Exactly. And, I, and even with, like, the standardized testing and the SATs and all that, or, you know, most states have some kind of mandated test that students have to take. I was like, y'all need to hi- put a hiatus on all that for, like, two or three years just to give people yeah. a chance to rebuild. Because really, a full year of – because I, personally, I don't feel like the kids learned anything. It was pretty much them right. going with the flow of things and trying to pretty much just get the assignments into the system and take whatever test. They didn't learn anything. I think with learning, there mm-hmm. has to be experiences as well, especially in yeah. the classroom. Um, there's just certain things that may not even necessarily be tangible, but just random experiences or random moments in the classroom mm-hmm. that were funny and everybody laughed. Like, people remember those things, so we don't have any of that. And like you said, your mm-hmm. mom is in the background fussing because you didn't vacuum. So now, you know, the teacher's trying to tell you something. Oh, he'll be back in two minutes. He needs to vacuum. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a lot going on. Um, yes, Definitely. So our final hot topic before we jump into your music, I want to talk about, and you did talk about this a bit on your, on your channel, the rise of all these gurus, whether it be educational gurus, romantic relationship gurus, one person in particular, and we're not going to say his name too many times because I don't want to give him the publicity, but um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Mr. K. S. And so, and then now he recently has a beef with a very popular doctor, psychiatrist, um, Mr. Dr. Umar Johnson, and he, I have some, of my, some, I have some issues with him as well. And so it's been interesting because I feel like sometimes you don't, you sometimes you see it right away. Sometimes you don't see it till later on because obviously throughout this pandemic, a lot of people's real lives have been coming to the surface, and so. It oftentimes looks like the, it's the same people that are arguing or fighting towards each other, and they're trying to act like one is better than the other. And I'm like, you really kind of do the same thing as that person does. Mm-hmm. And so why – and you talked about this. Um, I want to discuss for a few minutes, like, why do we idolize people, and especially what we see on a public platform, just because – they may dress nice or because they may have a lot of money or we think they have a lot of money and we perceive these things about them, but we fail to remember, Calvin, that social media is not always real. Like I've been thinking about the fact that people can even purchase or, or I should say rent an entire vacation set where it can look like they're traveling around the world and they didn't go nowhere. They literally has like fake water and all that stuff behind them and especially living in Southern California. They have it set up where you can even rent something that looks like you're on a private jet. You know what I mean? Private and jet. Uh-huh. We know it, and we know even people obviously rent suits. And, and I'm not saying that these people aren't educated or don't have any type of experience, but it's like we will automatically just worship them and take all their advice and eat it and chew it. And without even thinking about if these things make sense and not realizing it's like we're being led by like sheep and, and having so many actually – a breakdown in our society and in relationships. And so I want to hear your thought on that, like with the rise of all these gurus and even them not agreeing with one another and just the fact that we as a society will just eat up and just worship people without even knowing who they really are. I think it goes back to a conversation I had one time about discernment. And I always said 
in order to really survive in this world, you got to have one discernment, but two, you also have to kind of just be well studied about everything that pertains to what your experience is going to be. And I think as a society, because we worship the idea of celebrity so much, um, it's mm. translated into what happens with the internet, I guess, celebrities as well. So the influencers, people who have, and so people love to latch on to somebody that they admire because they sometimes want what they have, but sometimes they're just inspired, but it becomes, there's, there's a, a gray area where it gets messy and you don't know if people are, you know, just taking some advice and looking at it that way, or if they're really looking at these people like they're God almost. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there's a great YouTube channel. It's called Lectual Media. Uh, the, the woman, she just made a whole documentary. I think it just came out maybe yesterday talking about how mm-hmm. even the idea of materialism um, mm-hmm. and, and how people will fake it to make it. And people, you know, because even mm-hmm. what's happening right now with like the PPP loans where people um, took the loans, for, but they were fraudulent. And so, okay, one, you already took some money you weren't supposed to get from the government, but then you didn't even use it to better yourself or start a business. You, yeah. you used it to go and flex. And so right. and now you got felonies on the way. I can't. Yeah. You know, so I think as a society, yeah, people you latch on to who, makes, who says what you want to hear or who has what mm. it is you think you deserve or what it is you want. And I think that's why we're starting to see so many people not only follow some of these individuals, but literally – like the term stand, like they literally stand for mm-hmm. people. When you call out something they've done, people are ready to come and fight you. Same thing with celebrities. I'll never forget, I think I did a video, it was something with like, Nick, you know, Nicki Minaj and Cardi B had some kind of beef or something. Right. And all I said was something about, like, I wish get to the air where people just make their music and enjoy, you know, enjoy yeah. the moments because not everybody gets to cross over to mainstream success. So just make your music enjoy yourself. The way all right. these different people came, oh, I will stump you out. I'm like, wait, I got I to gotta fight now? <laughs> what, what did I say? And I didn't say anything out of pocket about either of them because I, I right. like both of their music. But I was like, whoa, okay. But, no, yeah. I think even with somebody like the KS character we've seen, yeah. I think some people enjoy watching this stuff because it's shock value. It's like, I know you didn't just mm. say that to that person. Like, how do you, oh, oh wow. Okay. And yeah. then there's a lot of people who latch on to the idea of, oh, I tell it like it is. Even though there's no nuance yeah. with it, there's no, there's right. no, it's not centered in anything. It's all ego, right. and it's performative, and people will latch onto it and think, oh yeah, they, they, they're down. And so then you get a whole cult following. And then when you go and look into some yeah. of people's background, it's like you're the relationship guru and you're not married. Oh okay, mm-hmm. all right, yeah. He explained to me, okay, because um, there's another prominent celebrity that kind of has that same realm that I fry up on occasion all the time because I'm like everything that you speak yeah. out against, you're the polar opposite of. Um, or you do the right. same thing. So I do think we worship celebrity a little too much or, or public figures mm-hmm. and also the idea of materialism and wealth. A lot of people, mm-hmm. I think, value themselves and other people based on what they have or what proximity they have to something else. Um, and who they who, have. Yeah, exactly. And you'll, you'll watch people who literally think of social media. A lot of people are pretending to be wealthier than they are. You know, people will mm-hmm. go, like you mm-hmm. said, and, and, you know, rent the car and sit on top of the luxury car and everything else like that. And meanwhile, their car is one step from being repoed. And it's not to judge or to take away, but right. we've got to a place where we place value on our image and it's correlating to what it is that we have. And so mm-hmm. I, I would hope people can break away from that because it's a dangerous way to look at things. And it's really it's something that's prominent in the United States. It's prominent in other parts of the world as well, but I think it's something that's really starting to hit here because of, one, the emergence of social media. And, again, in order to – really get to what like think about what it is that most likely will get a like on Instagram when you mm. go and you talk or you look at who are the influencers 
I always thought the term influencer was supposed to mean like people who give life advice and help you feel better through the day. I didn't realize it was, oh, it's influencing people to go and purchase something or support a product. I'm yeah. Like, what? So then that's right. when you end up getting another <laughs> fire festival where you get all these yeah. rich kids who thought there was going to be this luxurious festival that was going to be top of, top of the line villas and, you know, they special all the pictures and, and videos and for social media to brag. Yeah. And then y'all stuck out there. And then you want everybody to feel bad. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a mess. It's, it's crazy. It's the craziest yeah. thing. And I even tell people who, like, try to do YouTube, like, some people will come after me and be like, oh, your channel's like a flop. I'm like, it's not really a flop because I've never wanted to, like, get famous from it. It's just it's my way to vent and release and keep it moving. Mm-hmm. If I really wanted this mm-hmm. channel to be bigger, I could easily go and throw a wig on and do parodies, but that's not really <laughs> what I want to do. And it's not a dig at the people who do that, but, the, right, you know, you right. kind of recognize what works. I could stop all the political right. conversation and only talk pop culture. Because I could rack up a bunch of views, but I'm not interested in that being mm-hmm. the only thing I talk about. So, you know, right. substance is everything. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I have one particular person who was a friend of mine, and um, they are very popular on social media with millions of followers, and they would look like they're all living such a glamorous life. And then, literally, um, unfortunately, there was a breakdown in our friendship because he was literally popping from hotel to hotel. And then he also, this person also struggled with. Um, substance abuse plus mental health issues, and and also, I don't like to use this word, but this person definitely is narcissistic. And so because mm-hmm. I was not willing to just open my pockets and give them money because I knew that I was going to continue to fund their lifestyle, and the advice I had given to them was I know of this really amazing nonprofit I work with where you would be able to live there, you'd be able to get clean, you'd be able to not have to worry about food, not have to worry about where you're going to stay. And then, you know, got really upset with me. He was like, I can't believe you think I would go to a shelter. And I said, it's not a shelter. It's like, well, they all have their thing. And they're literally, well, you're not who I think you are. Unfollowed me and it's no longer mm. talking to me. And it's like literally has millions of followers where he should never have to worry. This person should never have to worry about money, Calvin, but hasn't even, doesn't even have a website, doesn't even have any merch that's out, not even selling anything, just literally just doing little silly, like crazy, you know, um, videos, and then just showing people how glamorous they are. And I'm like, people have no idea that that person is literally on, like, mental health issues, substance abuse issues, and literally is on the brink of homelessness, if not homeless already. And it's just Mm. unfortunate, you know. And then then another person closer to the situation is challenging because knowing the person personally, but obviously one of the, the, the most famous guru in the world that fell from grace, and it was, like, really challenging because, obviously, you cannot deny all the, the facts and everything that has come out. Also, my experiences with him, as far as him mentoring me and my career and with social media and different things, has always been professional, has always been encouraging. You know, it's always been very humble. And so that was really hard for me to have to, like, swallow that pill because I never followed this person or supported them for the relationship advice. It was for good advice they gave me about me staying in my dreams and what I do and, and none of that mm-hmm. other stuff that they're famous for. And then literally seeing all this stuff come out and I'm like, oh, I just have to silently dis- I silently distance myself from them and just, you know, praying for them and their family. But it just sucks because it's here. I know you to be this one way. And I'm not saying that's not part of how he is, but then now look at all this stuff that's come out and mm-hmm. you, can't continue, you can't continue in this career anymore if you're fraudulent and you know that you need help. And if you're not willing to get help, be honest, but don't sit there and lie to people anymore about it because now your whole platform is falling down and it just sucks because you've been able to make a career off of this and you have been, helped a lot of people along the way, but then also you lied a lot and you, and you have, you know, been fraudulent. And so it's just, it's really unfortunate. And it taught me a lot too about 
the importance of knowing that you don't understand, you may not know all of who a person is, you know, and so it just sucks. Yeah, and, I, and I've always, I've gotten to a place where I have my favorite kind of entertainers or public figures, but there's not a single person that I put all of my energy into because I recognize that people are going right. to be human and they're going to do, so, you right. know, because um, it, it should never get to the point where, you follow someone so hard that even if they're doing something that's half crazy, you're still vouching for them just because. And then you want to kind of push another argument and, and twist it to, oh, they just out to get them and tear the man down. No, no, they're just wrong. I'm sorry. Um, right? yeah, and I said, like, for people who want to build brands and stuff, I'm like, with your branding, there has to be, again, the idea of substance. because And, and not just substance because, again, people like entertainment. I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm just – I only read and only, you know, do, you know, things right. that have – purpose. I still have a life too, right. but you know, it's, you want to have a balance of what it is that you put out there. And you also, I really, mm-hmm. I've never been one to fake it. I've never tried to pretend that I'm right. rich or anything because I'm not. Like people, you know, they know I have a job. So if they don't see me, they know I'm probably, it was a bad work week. I just need some me time. I think when you constantly right. try to put an image out there that you can't live up to, it, when they come, when you get exposed, then it, it sucks. And it's even the same again when you're talking about living beyond your means and trying to yep. present an image that's out there. At the end of the day, people aren't thinking about you once they close the social media anyway. Like you're not mm-hmm. on it. Nobody's thinking about you at 2 a.m. while they're, you know, about to go to sleep. <laughs> so I think sometimes we have to get out of our own heads sometimes. Like it's, I don't know, people, right. I've watched so many people literally destroy themselves trying to create something mm-hmm. or, or build a brand, but it's not based in anything. It's all based in image mm-hmm. and materialism. Right. And I'm like, all right, if that's what y'all into, go ahead. I'm good. But, yeah, you're, you're 100% right. So I want to talk about your original music. You currently have two albums out, your first album, Symphonic Euphoria, and your second album, The Hardcover. Tell us about your first album, Symphonic Euphoria First, and how you learned to executive produce all of your own music. Ooh. All right. Um, so I've always wanted to kind of do music just as a hobby. Like, it was one of my goals. I was like, I want to build my own studio one day just to have it. Because, um, you know, my, I've always said the best gift my mother ever bought me was a keyboard when I was maybe, I think it was like 11 or 12. Um but mm-hmm. I've always kind of made music when I grew up. One of my best friends growing up, we used to make music together, but they had all the real equipment. My parents weren't about to spend that on me. So I'd go to their house and we just, you know, make all kind of little songs. And I kind of started learning about, like, stacking vocals and layering and all of that. But I never mm-hmm. really pushed it. And then around 2016, um, I got a really, really good tax return, like a really good tax return. Turn. I don't know why, but I was like, is this legal? And so I got a good tax return. And then um, at the same time, it was like, oh, there was a Janet Jackson concert I wanted to go to, but she canceled it because she was pregnant. And so I was actually going to see that show twice. And I had also bought like a ticket for me and another friend. And so, you know, when she canceled mm-hmm. the show, you get your money back. And so I was like, you know what? I have a lot of money right now. Man, this is the perfect time to build a studio. So I literally just went to the guitar center and was like, okay, I want to build a studio. What do I need? And you know, so the guy told me everything. You know, I already had, like, my own, like, adult-sized keyboard. But so I, I built the studio, got the Pro Tools, didn't know how to use any of this stuff. I was in here cussing every day for, like, three months because it was – I couldn't even figure out how to set the stuff up. It was just cords and wires <laughs> everywhere. I was, like, I was like, what did I do? I was really close to, like, just putting it all back. Like, let me take this stuff back. What am I doing? I'm playing games around here. Mm-hmm. But, no, I <laughs> – YouTube is my friend. YouTube, you can find everything on YouTube. I mean, it can tell you yes. how to change a car tire. You might find missing mm-hmm. children on YouTube. So, like, yeah. <laughs> um, I 
eventually just kind of stuck it out. And so I finally started learning how to actually create because I knew how to do everything on my actual keyboard. I just didn't know how to do it in the software. So once I learned how to use the software, I just started kind of playing around. And I wasn't planning to make an album. But, you know, I just tested things out. And I think the first song I made for that album was High Tide. And then I was like, hmm, let's keep going and do a little bit more. So I, I say the first album is like the learning experience. I was learning it along the way. And then I just had enough mm-hmm. decent material where I was like, actually, this it's a pretty nice album. Let's just go ahead and put it out. Mm-hmm. So the first album, um, Symphonic Euphoria, that's what that was. It was kind of just like a lot of ideas that I made been sitting on for a few years, and, you know, I finally put it on record. I'm actually going to go back and remaster that album because um, I just learned a whole lot about mm-hmm. mastering since that one came out. So I'm going to go back and mm-hmm. remaster that one sometime later in the year. But, um, yeah, that was mm-hmm. just a fun album. It was a great way to kind of test the waters. I didn't think I was doing a second one. And then mm-hmm. – I don't know, because Symphonic Euphoria came out, and I was like, wait, I still have an itch to do more. <laughs> so then the hardcover, <laughs> in, in my head, the hardcover is my first album. Symphonic Euphoria really is. Right. But the hardcover is the one where I really, like, made an effort to, like, have a scene and do everything. Mm-hmm. I love both albums, but I really think the hardcover was, like, a great um, – it's a great follow-up to mm-hmm. Symphonic Euphoria. I, I like high-energy music. Like, I think one of my critiques about yeah. music right now is that everything is so gloom and doom and monotone and right. uneventful. And it's – fine i don't mind it but if that's the only thing that's out i'm like y'all are killing me it's the summer i want to party it's like i don't want to concentrate yeah. right now so um <laughs> I, I really like making like up temples you know my influence musically is a lot of prince jimmy jam and terry lewis yes, michael my number Janet one favorite artist stuff. of all time <laughs> yeah so i i love all of their stuff so that's really you hear a lot of that on the first album the second album is a little bit mm. a little bit more nuanced with additional sounds but i just like making high energy music and stuff that feels good and then again i like to dance too but as i'm getting older right. i'm like okay well i'm probably not going to be coaching any more teams but being on any dance <laughs> but hey if i make some up temples i could do my own music video do it that way so um, yes yeah so that's pretty much what the music is it's therapeutic i i don't yeah. have any end goals with any of my albums i just kind of put them out because i just want people to hear what was in my head i've never really made an right. effort to go and get a record deal or anything i mean i could go mm-hmm. if i wanted to maybe and might have some luck but you know, I just, it's mm-hmm. just I just want to share what's in my head creatively. It's just it's a fun thing yeah. to do. Um, and so, yeah, I, I love the hardcover album. Right. Now, let's talk about that, your newest album, which you consider to be your first album, the hardcover. And that cover art is amazing. Love that photo. And the You know what? I shot so that wonderful in the living room in two minutes. <laughs> I, I, I'm no to way. Talk the way I had a black sheet and the timer on the camera, and I just put a little, um, wow. like, a sheet on one of the lamps and ran. And, you know, the clock is like, tick, tick, tick. I ran, pulled. Okay, got it. Got that for shot. Now, I did, like, 40 no takes. Way. That was a good one. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Even the Symphonic Euphoria, I shot that. That was just in my living room. I was just in front of the window. Wow. So, um, and, you know, you see some incredible. nice tricks. But, like, Symphonic uh, Euphoria, the, the, tell us what about I tried to do. Too. Oh, okay, definitely. But, like. Uh, with Symphonic Euphoria, I shot that on the 4th of July. You can't see it in the picture because that's too much editing, but there were fireworks mm. in the window. You just couldn't see them. But <laughs> as far as the hardcover, um, yeah, the hardcover, um, I actually did like a whole documentary about how I made it on my channel, but it's pretty yes, much a, it, it tells the story of my entire young adult life until I'm about, until about the year 2018. Um, and it's kind of almost chronological, so it kind of goes – some ups and downs, so it kind of covers like some relationships that didn't go well, and getting locked mm. into situationships that you don't need to be in, and then mm-hmm. you know, father dies, and then just recognizing things in the world are changing. So there's like songs like Jaded View, Jaded Blue that are a little bit heavier, and then um, songs like Tenacity that are about kind of like bouncing back through 
you know, hardships mm. and so on and so forth. Um, I really wanted the production to be very, like, big and bold. So most of the music mm-hmm. on that album is very in-your-face. And like I said, I love mm-hmm. high-energy music. So that whole album, is the, it really could be two separate albums. Um, I could have broken mm-hmm. it in half and maybe the first half until maybe the song Addicted could have been the first album. And the second half mm-hmm. would have been the affirmation to the end. Cause there's, there's two totally different energies. The first half is very, again, in-your-face, party. Lots, you know, you put that on if you need to exercise and do some cardio. But the second half mm-hmm. is a little bit more concentrated, a lot more live instrumentation. Um, and, again, mm-hmm. like I'm doing everything on it. So you write all the songs, you wow. play all the instruments, you do all the vocals, the mixing, mastering, everything. So, um, wow. yeah, it, it, it was a fun project. It took a long time because, um, like I said, I mm-hmm. didn't plan on – coming out with another album, and so I was just kind of making music, mm-hmm. um, and then I realized it's going to be an album, but again, I didn't tell anybody it was coming out until it was ready to come out, so by the time I had made the announcement that, oh, it's going to come out, it was already finished, so I didn't have to stress, and I did a, a whole launch mm-hmm. party, went out of the club, and it was fun, yeah. um, and wow. so it's time to kind of do something new, though, because that album's been out for two years, but the good yeah. thing with YouTube, again, as the YouTube channel keeps going, none of those people know I have an album out. So, you know, I normally exactly. put a snippet at the end of each video. So you constantly keep getting mm-hmm. new followers for your music after each video you upload. So um, that's right. pretty cool. Oh, I, was just gonna say, I went to promote it a little bit more, but, you know, COVID showed up. So that kind of killed all of my promotional anything <laughs> by the time uh, COVID right. showed up and said what's up. Right. And you're an award-nominated musical artist, too, so congratulations on that. We actually have three songs from your newest album that we're going to be playing live on air for our listeners. Let's start with the first one. Tell us about your song, Friend Zone, and the inspiration behind it. I love all of the songs from the album. Oh, um, oh you know, Friend Zone almost didn't make the album. I was cussing that song out. Cause, um, it just, <laughs> it, 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 well, let me say the good part. Yeah, I love this song. It's a great song. It's fun. I ended up getting or wanting to do that song because I was randomly listening to Miguel's album, and he had a song called Told You So, and it has a very Prince feel. I was like, wait, I need a song like that, too. I don't have one. <laughs> so I was like, I want a song with that same energy. And so I kind of – it has, like, a similar formula to, say, like a Sheila E. glamorous life as far as with the synthesizer in the background. And dun, 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 it kind of almost reminds of glamorous life, but mm-hmm. it's – it's very funky. It's, it's just about, again, and it's from two different angles. The idea of you have somebody or a friend that you really like, but they're not feeling you like that, but they also don't realize that you like them, or vice versa. Um, somebody likes you, and you aren't giving them the time of day, but they're like the mm. best person for you. Um, but So when I made the song, uh, the bridge that you hear is that was added towards the end, because initially the bridge, because I, I slowed it down in the middle of the song, None of that was in there. Mm-hmm. And I felt like the song mm-hmm. got redundant. I was like, okay, I got to do something because it's going to get redundant. You keep doing the same loop. Because it's one of the few songs I have that doesn't have a lot of piano chords. It's really just synth and bass. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the dangers with that in production sometimes, is it, it can get repetitive. And, it's, and again, I was like, I also probably need to put some stronger vocals on this because it's a fun song. It's lighthearted. So it, it's not a lot of hooting and hollering. So I was like, okay, well, at least – I like the bridge a little. Let's put some life in the bridge so people don't think I'm just on this song whispering all day. So, um, but it's fun. I think the vocals are kind of like a mix of like a Michael Jackson s thing on the hook. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It ends up being one of my favorites once I made the polished version of it. So yeah, that was mm-hmm. a fun one. I wanted to do a video for it, but again, COVID showed up. I was gonna do two additional mm-hmm. videos for this project. Um, there was gonna be one for Can I Come Through and one for Addicted, and then if I had time, I was gonna do Friend Zone. But okay. It's, 
Mm-hmm. So maybe it's maybe another mm-hmm. time. So that's friend zone. Well, can you please introduce it live on air so we can play it for our listeners? Um, ladies and gentlemen, this is my song Friend Zone off the hardcover album. I hope you enjoy. Champagne. 
on Sade Champagne. Welcome back to the Sade Champagne Show on Grind Hard Radio and 57WLLE.net, the beat of the city in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm still here with one of my favorite creatives and communicators, Calvin Michaels. Calvin, tell us about your song, Can I Come Through, from the hardcover album and how it came about. All right, so this was one of the last songs that made the album. And at the time, the album had so many up-temples. I was like, I need something a little smoother to balance it out. Like I said, I love high-energy music, but you don't want to have too much of the same thing on the project. Then people are like, all right, you just, I got a headache listening to this. You got to, <laughs> so I was like, all right, I want it to balance out. And so uh, there was a different song that was supposed to go in that place. I think that's track number 20 on the album. But there was a different song that was supposed to be there, but it, but it, it was a ballad. And I liked it, but I just didn't think it fit because I already kind of had July 11th on the album, which is another kind of slow mm-hmm. song. So I was like, uh, let me get something that's smooth, like kind of like a quiet storm vibe, but can still kind of be catchy, but it, it's perfect. It's like one of those songs you can drive to on a freeway at 2 in the morning coming home. Mm-hmm. And I heard Tamia's um, Leave It Smoking had been on the radio. I was like, I like this. And like it was smooth. Like it's kind of like, even like a, a Ralph Tresvant sensitivity, one of those songs where, it's an up-tempo, but mm-hmm. it can be a slow jam at the same time. So that's what that mm. one is. Like, it's just something very smooth, um, subtle. Um, it just kind of it helps to close the album out and, and bring the album home to wind it down. Um, and I think it's like mm. the perfect precursor to the follow-up song, everything that's on there. And so um, mm-hmm. the production, that was, it was a very easy song to record because it's very smooth. Um, and I was so dramatic when I recorded it. Like, anytime I'm doing, like, the, the, the slower songs, I have all the lights off and candles and all this other <laughs> stuff in my living room to try to, like, get in the you zone. You get the vibe. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I was so dramatic making it. Like, cause, and one of the things I've always done is I document everything. So all of my recording sessions, I always have a camera mm-hmm. on recording myself putting it together. So when wow. I was looking back, I was like, you are such a loser. Like, I was laughing at myself. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so that's yeah. a fun song. I think it's. I just think it, it, it's fitting for 2020, 2021. It's just very, um, and it seems to be a favorite as well. It, it has its own legs. Um, I think that the songs I really promote on the album are It Played Us and Addicted. But, like, Can I Come Through mm-hmm. with that one that always creeps up. And when I'm looking at the numbers, mm-hmm. um, it's always mm-hmm. one that still, it has its own legs. It's kind of cool that this album's been out for two years and people are still listening to it. So. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, we want to play it live for our listeners on air. So, Calvin, please introduce your amazing song, Can I Come Through, for us. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is the song, Can I Come Through, off my album, The Hardcover.
I'm Shade Champagne. Welcome back to the Shade Champagne Show on Grind Hard Radio and 57WLLE.net, the beat of the city in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm still here with the phenomenal, super entertaining, and encouraging Calvin Michaels. Calvin, what are you currently working on or have coming up? Ooh, do I want to tell you or not? No, you know, um, <laughs> I am working on something. I've been kind of tight-lipped because I'm like, I don't want to put it out there too early. But, yes, I am working on another project. I'm excited okay. about the, it's, it's a little different. It's still me. It's going to be a lot. I think people will be very, very surprised when it comes out. But I think people will be very happy. I try to meet the mm. best of both worlds because I think I have a lot of people who like the, inner, the high energy stuff. But some people want to hear this more subtle stuff. And it was funny because I was playing – one of the songs to my godmom, and so she is in love with, like, Teddy Pendergrass and, you know, all the crooners. And she was like, listen, I love you. I think you have the most beautiful voice, but you guys be making all that wild, fast stuff with lasers and stuff. Sometimes you just need to make something smooth. So I, was like, <laughs> I was like, dang, like, she fried me up for real. I was like, dang, okay. So um, that is nice. And so I've tried to kind of balance both. So all the high-energy stuff will still be there, but I've definitely taken more effort to – let me give, like, some nice R&B slow jam kind of songs. And then some things that are just different that maybe I haven't really jumped into before. I don't have a tentative release date yet. I, my goal was to have it out this summer. Um, that's probably a stretch because, like I told you, my equipment acting funny today. But um, mm-hmm. I, I do plan to have it out in 2021, and I'm getting ready to set up the whole rollout, you know, um, mm. getting the – video done and the photo shoot. I was supposed to shoot the photo or the album cover in Chicago. I don't know if I'm going to have time to do it. Um, I might do something mm-hmm. different, but it's in, it's like 65% ready. So I, I, the, mm. the last 45% okay. is you got to hustle. What happens, I mm-hmm. think, I don't know if other people who make music go through this, but because I really like take my time, sometimes I take too much of my own time. I get comfortable. And so in order to finish mm. the album, I have to really push because I get, into the zone and this is how my albums end up being so long they're never supposed to be as long as they are but i can get new <laughs> ideas over time and i'm like well i'm gonna add this too i think symphonic Four mm-hmm. was supposed to be 10 songs and i think the archive was supposed to be 12 and then both ended mm-hmm. up being 18 so mm-hmm. and with some interludes that are really not even interludes they're just the songs that couldn't make the album but i still wanted them on there so make them shorter and turn it into an interlude um right and so i'm excited um the it has two sides. It, the project will be called the Today Project, and one portion is called Before Tomorrow, and the other is called After Yesterday, and they both equate to today. And so, mm. um, yeah, it'll be very different. I can't wait to put it out. Uh, but yes. I'm hoping the summer. If not, it'll be a fall release, God willing. But, yeah, I want to get the videos <laughs> out the way because uh, I, I, where I dropped the ball with the hardcovers, I didn't get to shoot the video I wanted to shoot before the album came out. I was going to shoot one for Addicted. Life happened, mm-hmm. and I had to just keep the ball rolling. So it, the addictive video mm-hmm. never became a thing. But we got to shoot one before it played us. So that was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, it yeah. came out a little bit later. Wow. Well, I will tell you, because you're an independent artist and you basically are running your own show, you can release music videos for your albums and for your songs whenever you want to. I do it all the mm-hmm. time. A song can be out for two years, three years. I don't care. If I just got a chance now to make the music video, y'all go get this music video. <laughs> right. Look, I was still trying to release an Atomic. Well, you know what? My very first album, I saw the music video for Breathe, but I hated it, so I never put it out. I was like, no, this is not going to be light of day. So, yeah, maybe one of those days that video will come out. But, um, yeah, yeah it's uh, – I think I thought Tamar Braxton did that with – she went back and released videos from, like, her previous two albums. I was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I'm glad somebody did that because I don't know why – Yes. I mean, 
it's a budgeting thing. But yeah, I, sometimes you know you always have those artists where there's a song you wish they did a video for two or three albums ago. Yes. So it would be kind of cool to see yes. other people do the same thing. Exactly. And so how can people book you for gigs, speaking engagements, watch your content, listen to more of your music, and stay connected with your happenings? Um, as far as reaching out, you can always reach out to me at my email, calvindmichaels at gmail.com. I'm actually building my website finally, so hopefully I can have that set up Yay. soon. I already have the domain name. If nobody had calvindmichaels.com. I'm like, thank you, God. So yes. um, <laughs> that should be launching pretty soon. I, I get a whole lot on my plate, so I'm struggling a little bit to get everything together. I'm a one-man team. And so um, mm-hmm. as far as, like, bookings and everything, yeah, so definitely – Calvin B. Michaels at Gmail. As far as the YouTube content or any content, you honestly can Google Calvin Michaels on anything and I'll pop up. So as far as the streaming sites mm-hmm. with music, whether it's Tidal or Apple Music or iTunes, Calvin Michaels, the podcast, Comedically Hardheaded, you can search Calvin Michaels, it will still pop up. Or you can search mm-hmm. Comedically Hardheaded on any of the um, platforms as well, iTunes, iHeart, um, let me see, iHeart, uh, Stitcher, Google Play, all of mm-hmm. that. Um, social media, same thing. Calvin Michaels, I'll pop up on all the social media sites. So I try to just make it mm-hmm. universal so it's not, you, you don't have 15 different things you got to look for. Right. Thank you. So please tell us about your third song that you brought for us today from your hardcover, the hardcover album, Addicted. And then please, after you tell us about it, introduce it, and we'll play it live on air as we close out this episode. All right. So I know it was so hard picking what songs to sing because I think the album is so different. So I tried to pick three songs that kind of give you an essence of what to expect. But um, mm-hmm. Addicted uh, was supposed to be pretty much the first single from the album. I randomly just had this obsession with wanting to make a song that merges the 80s and the 90s together. And so there's mm-hmm. lots of hidden gems within the song. The drum loop is inspired by Slick Rick's Mona Lisa. And then at the same time, I was randomly watching Janet's Janet tour or a piece of it, and I just really like what the background vocalist did on her song because of love. So there's elements of that in there. There's elements of boys to men's thank you in Vogue's never gonna get it. TLC thank you probably mm-hmm. in the background vocals I've merged Outcast Rosa Parks in there as well. Um, Janae's sending no Janae's Hey Mr DJ um, LL Cool J's Round the Way. So there's a bunch of different songs that mm-hmm. have influence mm-hmm. that I just I, it was like put them in a blender and turn it into a song. And so it's a fun <laughs> song. It's a smooth groove, but I, I think it's, it sounds really good in the car. Um, and so, mm. yeah, it's just a song that kind of um, meshes the world of R&B and hip-hop, but R&B and hip-hop from mm-hmm. the 80s and the 90s and makes it fit in today's time. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is my song, Addicted, from the hardcover album. I do want to thank you all so much for tuning in to this special episode of the Sade Champagne Show on Grind Hard Radio and 57WLLE.net, the beat of the city in Raleigh, North Carolina. Calvin, thank you so much for this amazing interview and this time together. You are just phenomenal. I will continue to support all of your work and your creativity and share about it on my platforms as well. Y'all make sure y'all go and listen to his music, stream it, download it, Watch his videos, all that good stuff, and stay updated because, like I said, not only do you get a good history lesson, but you also are encouraged and entertained. And so I will see you all again for a brand-new episode very soon.
Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch 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 
That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.